The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. kind of a literary value because of uh, a certain rhetorical flair that a particular passage uh, provides. Well, you see, that's what's going on normally uh, with uh, these early writers and even some of the later church fathers if they're not actually trying to provide some kind of, uh, of an exegetical, of an expository treatment. and. Um, and therefore, we, we need to be very careful. Now, it's still valid to ask the question, how are these uh, passages being used? But we've got to be careful not to claim more than, than, than ought to be claimed regarding, regarding that issue. What was the exegetical method, or what were the hermeneutical um, uh, underpinnings, if you will, of the early church fathers in the second and the third century. I um, make the point, uh, page five, the third paragraph, where again I'm saying it's unhelpful to draw too sharp a distinction uh, between applying the Bible and, and getting at the historical meaning in view of the emotional character of uh, <coughs> Paul's battles, <coughs> or rather the, the, the battles of uh, that uh, some of these church fathers were themselves uh, waging, uh, it was in inevitable that the meaning of the text would undergo some shift in the new context. We may be sure, however, that Irenaeus saw no opposition or even discontinuity between what Paul had meant and what he was now taking Paul to mean. Moreover, it would be self-deception for modern defenders of the historical method to think that no shift of meaning takes place when they expound, let alone apply, the text of Galatians in our contemporary context. My point here is that even, even someone like Heinrich August Wilhelm Meyer, uh, so totally committed to a strict, unadulterated historical exegesis, when you read his expositions, his exegetical material, he is contextualizing. He is shifting the meaning if only because he is actually trying to restate what Paul said in a different language, in a different time, with uh, concerns that certainly were not Paul's concerns. I mean, Paul's last thing in Paul's mind is, you know, let me check Walter Bauer's lexicon uh, or have a very detailed grammatical analysis of my subordinate clause or anything of the sort. So, so the very way in which questions are being framed, which are necessitated by our context, namely that we live a long distance and, and we've got to do something to figure out the meaning of the, of the language and so on, uh, those very things almost by definition mean that whenever you 
expound uh, a text, any text, not, we're not just talking about the Bible, anything, uh, you recontextualize. I mean, the only way that you can avoid recontextualizing, and even then, even here, this, this could, might be an interesting question, is if you simply read it in Greek. Um, but if, if you translate it, if you say it in words other than the words used, automatically you're right there um, shifting somewhat the focus. That doesn't mean that you are invalidating the meaning of the text or the, you're misusing it or that whatever point you're making is not valid. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, I'm just uh, suggesting that uh, there are certain shifts that are simply unavoidable. Now, <clears throat> the uh, great advantage of looking at Chrysostom's homilies, and by the way, they are homilies, but his homilies on, on Galatians uh, come the closest to what we might call a commentary of all these other homilies and, and the other books of the, of the New Testament. It really does look like a commentary, almost, except that at the end of each homily, then he starts you know, doing this and the other, and uh, needs to apply it, and uh, Chrysostom, no less than the rest of us, uh, are not always real effective at um, uh, you know, bridging the exegetical and, and, and the uh, applicatory uh, all that well. But uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> he was uh, a self-conscious exegete. He really asked the question about authorial intention all the time. And I gave you a couple of examples of that. Um, for example, that quotation on page 6, where um, uh, he realizes that there is an exegetical problem or question that could be raised by uh, chapter 1, verse 17. And um, to be sure, um, in this particular case, it isn't simply <coughs> a question of authorial intent in which that matter is discussed nowadays, he is more worried about uh, the question of Paul's motivation, you know, is he being arrogant, uh, that kind of thing, and then the, that, that gets a little subtle, distinguishing between authorial intent in the narrower sense and broader questions about uh, an author's motivation, That's a, but it is a different thing. I do mention that his uh, concern with this issue also uh, is probably related to his um, skill in um, identifying distinctive features in the text. This is the, the last main paragraph on page 6. Uh, and so when uh, Paul, in the uh, salutation to the Galatians, uh, identifies not only himself, but also the brothers who are with me, Chrysostom picks up on the fact, hey, this isn't found elsewhere. At least not quite this way. And uh, so you ask why. Why do we have a distinctive feature in, in this text? And um, there are many instances where Chrysostom's exegetical sensibilities manifest themselves just because of that. And so he will often, as well, uh, argue by negation. Uh, Paul does not say, Uk, such and such, Allah the other. And any good preacher, and in fact any, forget the preacher 
something here, even a good scientist, in trying to communicate as clearly as possible uh, any, any detail, he will frequently oppose it to some other things that are similar to it. Uh, it's not quite this, it's this, you see, arguing by negation. At this point, uh, for a couple different reasons, I um, jump uh, a thousand years and give you some uh, comparable examples from Luther. And it is very important to distinguish between the 1519 edition of Luther's commentary in Galatians from the one that became really definitive um, work in 1535, very different works in, in many respects. Um, it's almost like two different people at times. There, I'm, I'm sure there are many reasons for this, and I, I'm not a Luther scholar, and, and I don't feel like um, I can um, fully understand what's going on. I mean, some things are obvious. Uh, you know, 16 years have passed. He's a more mature man in some respects. He has uh, gone through a lot of battles, which have undoubtedly affected uh, the way in which he thinks and expresses himself. But uh, other things are going on here that I don't, don't fully understand, and I wish I had the time to, um, to reflect on them and uh, uh, maybe talk to somebody that, that really knows this stuff. Uh, in fact, I've been named to write to uh, Pelican, and, um, first of all, to thank him for his wonderful books in the history of dogma, but also to, uh, to see whether he has any, um, any uh, suggestions about this sort of thing. Um, the one that uh, certainly surprised me as I was reading this material, uh, and I can't remember now whether I talk about this here later, but um, in, in his 1519 uh, uh, commentary, he makes all kinds of, of positive statements about the law <coughs> that, uh, you know, I mean, it's just not that, that you don't find those things in the 1535, it's that you know <laughs> You couldn't possibly find them there. I mean, it, it's just—it's just not possible. And um, I think I could prove quite easily uh, that uh, that the Luther didn't write one of those two commentaries if I if I used the methods often used by uh, biblical scholars um, to question the authenticity of Paul's letters very very easily. Now, you see, there's another technique. Um, you um, see two possibilities, and not only do you say that both are reasonable, but now you capitalize on the fact that there are two possibilities and work on that. Uh, you know, when I was uh, a teenager, <laughs> uh, I, I tried, I really did try, getting up early at 7 o'clock in the morning, reading a little bit of Isaiah, and then reading Matthew Henry's commentary on Isaiah. And part of my problem, of course, is that I stayed in bed trying to do this. <laughs> that doesn't work very well. But the thing that, that really uh, intrigued me is, uh, even back then, is that uh, from time to time, Matthew Henry would do this, and he would give you two different interpretations of a passage. And then, uh, or even two textual variants 
you see. And then he would give you two sermons, one for each of them. Now, it could be this. If so, look at what a tremendous comfort it is and encouragement. But it also could be this. Then he gives a little sermon now. Uh, so, uh, so Luther does that as well. And, and see, this is a very, very important point, I think, with regard to exegetical history and method. Because uh, some of the questions that arise in distinguishing between um, historical exegesis and application, the problem of relevance and so on, they really have to do to a certain extent with the problem of multiplicity of meaning. So that even if a person is formally committed to uh, single meaning, yet uh, it's sometimes difficult to tell the difference between single meaning and multiple meaning when people begin to apply these things or try to uh, to figure out what, what value do they have. Uh, well, we'll have uh, opportunity to deal with that more as, as the time uh, goes on. But um, So I tried to uh, end here by uh, talking about that distinction of what it meant and what it means. Even more important than um, you know, what Lightfoot or Longenecker or whoever uh, says about a particular passage, how he goes about justifying it uh, is of greater value. I think, frequently, I'm, I'm drawing generalizations. Obviously, there are lots of different things that, that you can do with a commentator. But uh, to a large extent, I think this is a, this is a true and, and valid uh, approach to um, get a sense of, of what is the, um, the rationale for a position and also how the commentator argues for it. By the way, that little um, comment on the, um, the footnote 26, I don't know if the name of William Weldmers um, means anything to you. I suppose maybe only would if uh, you don't work on African linguistics, but uh, oh no! I mean, you know, you know the Thomas Wilmers Prize here. It's the same family. William Wilmers was a a um, <coughs> student here at the seminary back in the 30s, and uh, he used to teach at uh, UCLA. And um, I met him once. Uh, in fact, I asked him to speak to a class I had at Westmont College back then. He also spoke at my church and. Uh, when he spoke at my church, the, the pastor of the church, Dwight Poundstone, who was a classmate of, of his back in the 30s, uh, he tells a story that uh, uh, I guess they came into the seminary in uh, 36, must have been, and uh, they had to take the Bible English exam. And I guess in those days it was pretty... Uh, demanding exam, I don't know, but uh, <clears throat> as uh, Mr. Ponson used to say, uh, Wellmers was uh, the only one in the class who passed it. However, we had the last laugh because uh, since he passed it, he didn't have to take the, uh, the particular introduction course that J. Gresham Machen 
was teaching. And then Machen died uh, you know, soon after that. So Welmers, for being the smartest one, didn't get to have Machen in the class. And then Paulson said, he wasn't that great a course, really. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but Welmers tells us that when he was a missionary in Africa, his boy, who was about three or four, something like that, uh, was with him, and, and the Welmers was trying to get the cubic footage of, of, the, um, of the bed of his truck. So he measured here, and he measured there, and he measured here, and I mean, he was just finishing measuring, and this little three or four year old boy tells him what the cubic footage is. Uh, it wasn't no, real precise, because you had fractions of inches and so on, but it was incredibly close, and uh, it happened uh, another time but uh, as he said later, once he got into school and began to learn math in, in the usual way, he completely lost his ability to apparently, you know, he somehow was able to, uh, to visualize or something. Uh, and uh, in a sense, you know, great scholars have a particular instinct. I mean, this is true in the sciences as well. You know, there have been uh, books written about scientific intuition, all this kind of stuff. And you don't want to minimize it. Um, and that's why I said earlier that even though scholar B here may come up with a certain interpretation with bad, with a bad argumentation, he may still be right because he senses that's the right uh, view of, of the particular problem. Nevertheless, you can't depend totally on intuition. And so you might as well try to figure out what are the reasons that people have come to, the, to their conclusions? Commentators don't do that as frequently or as fully as one might want. But uh, you still have to, um, to pay attention to that question. So I mentioned, and in the part this also uh, goes to, uh, to your question, Frank, about how, how do you form a, a general a sense of a uh, particular author. One thing is to identify his particular strengths. And uh, this has become more and more an issue, uh, given the explosion of knowledge and, and all the things that people are expected to do now, that uh, um, so much to read and, and to digest. And <clears throat> so you might as well uh, appreciate that um, every commentator you look at is going to have certain particular strengths. And uh, you might as well figure out what those are and uh, make the best of them in your own the use of these works. Prior to uh, the Reformation period, if you're dealing with, with uh, scholars from late antiquity into the late Middle Ages, you're not going to get much help at all with regard to fine points of, of the language the lexical or grammatical kinds of questions. Uh, but even at the time of the Reformation and uh, soon after, uh, there's still a lot, a lot of rough edges. And um, it is only when you get to the 17th, late 17th, and then into the 18th century that you can be more, uh, you can feel a little bit better about the kinds of judgments that are expressed. I also make the point that in the 19th and early 20th century, some of our better commentators were quite familiar with 
the linguistics that was being developed uh, at that time, and, and we call that comparative or historical linguistics, it was a tremendous uh, revolution, really, in the way in which uh, scholars understand language. You recall that toward the end of the 18th century, for the first time, uh, it dawned on people that languages uh, had a genetic connection. Um, at least it dawned on them in a way that it, people had not really thought about this before. And that was as a result of uh, this fellow, Sir William Jones, who was uh, in India and, and looking at uh, some Hindu or Hindustani materials. No, Sanskrit, actually. And uh, as he studied the language, it was very clear to him that there were certain correspondences between common words in Sanskrit, Greek, and Latin, which, as he announced to, um, to a uh, British scientific group uh, in London, um, these patterns cannot possibly be the result of accident. I mean, if you have two or three, you know, sure, there are certain kinds of correspondences among any, any languages that uh, look very convincing at first, but when you get into them, for example, the, the word for day in, in Latin, de, is, hey, sure, those two are related. No, no genetic connection there. It's just an accident that they sound the same. But how do we, how can we even say that? How do we know they're not related? Because the comparative linguists of the 19th century discovered certain kinds of phonological changes uh, that took place in development uh, of, of Indo-European. And the words that, uh, at least in certain settings, that have a D in uh, Latin have a different consonant in English and so on, uh, all kinds of uh, little details like that. But people like Lightfoot, uh, Burton, um, many of the, the, of the great scholars of the, of the late 19th, early 20th century, even if they themselves were not uh, professional linguists in that sense, uh, were quite aware of what was going on in, uh, in the linguistics of their day. Unfortunately, as uh, the the nature of linguistic study changed, and it changed pretty dramatically after the 1920s and 30s, uh, where people began to appreciate that uh, to understand how a language functions in, it, in any stage, you've got to um, uh, not pay so much attention to the historical development. In fact, you're better off ignoring the historical development, which distorts your perspective on how a language is uh, operating synchronically. And uh, for some reason, these developments in linguistics did not filter down in, in the other disciplines, um, in, including biblical um, uh, scholarship until just the past uh, few decades. And, and even now, you know, there's some problems there. Uh, and so I give as an example a Burden's commentary, which um, has all these incredibly and just great, uh, he, you know, he spent 25 years writing this commentary, and I think most of it was spent doing these intensive lexical studies. And uh, I mean, you can put all of them together into a volume, and it's, it's very nice. But um, uh, as I mentioned here, it's a little difficult figuring, it out, figuring out how much of it really, really uh, has a bearing on a, any kind of exegetical decision you might make for a particular uh, passage. 
I uh, point out that um, scholars like Betts and Bruce, neither of whom, by the way, was uh, particularly familiar with modern linguistics. Uh, when I went to study under Bruce and, and he had to read my own dissertation dealing with that sort of thing, uh, he spoke with pride about the fact that he was one of the few scholars who had a copy of Saussure's uh, course in general linguistics uh, in his office because he studied in Austria for a while and uh, became uh, acquainted with it. Uh, so he, it's not that he was ignorant of some of these developments, but it was not the thing that he was especially interested in. But you see, you don't have to be a, a linguist in that sense uh, to use language in a, in a way that corresponds to the nature of language. Uh, and that's why you, know, you, you can read someone like J.B. Lightfoot. And he's not always right, but uh, most of the time, He's quite responsible. I mean, he never read Saussure or Bloomfield or any of these guys, but, uh, but he knows how to deal with language. And in a sense, modern linguistics simply formalizes common sense. That's, that's a real superficial statement, but I think there's a lot to it. So you never see Betts and Bruce um, you know, looking for these as I say, rich exegetical nuggets of Greek syntax and vocabulary. But uh, you go to somebody like uh, Lenski, who has been so popular. Uh, I don't know how popular he still is, but uh, boy, when I was a student, uh, everybody was reading Lenski, you know, because he's always talking about the Greek. And, and uh, so he seemed to get a lot of payoff from all your hard work in uh, elementary Greek. But um, uh, in, in the third, uh, in the next chapter, uh, I give some examples of the sorts of things he does. Longenecker. Uh, most of the time is not bad, but boy, from time to time he comes up with a rash of, uh, of uh, strange kinds of um, linguistic comments. Um, and I give you a couple of examples there. Then I treat this really interesting question about uh, the role of uh, an ancient Greek uh, father, such as Chrysostom. What do you do with someone like that when, uh, when he gives you some kind of linguistic detail? And uh, one of the points I make here, and, and you really need to understand that, uh, linguists know very well that if they're trying to uh, understand how language works, uh, you don't go to the highly educated people in the society and then ask them, you know, uh, what does this mean, or how do you use this word? Or when you do that, you're going to get a distorted picture of the way languages actually work in the society. You go to a variety, you know, uh, social spread, and you don't ask a person to comment on any particular linguistic fact. You just ask questions that elicit a particular response in, in the use of language. And uh, did I give the example of, yeah, William Laboff when, when he was trying to figure out the, uh, the pronunciation of, of the R in New York among different classes. And he went to Macy's, uh, went to the fourth floor, and his people came out of the elevator and said, what, what floor is this? And uh, then he made notations depending on how they pronounced the word uh, fourth. Um, the last thing you want to do if you want to know how English is spoken is to ask somebody, you know, how 
you know, how do you distinguish between these two words, or what is the proper pronunciation of this, uh, or uh, you know, just don't do that. And and so someone like Chrysostom, who was a very educated person, the minute that you can tell that he's consciously thinking about what is the proper way to say, you know, what is the proper distinction, and so on. Uh, I'm not saying that you should ignore it, but at that point, all you can do is to take his opinion as only that, an opinion, which may or may not reflect the way the language is used and understood by people. What is much more instructive is when Chrysostom will make a statement that does not appear to uh, reflect some awareness on his part of a different way of looking at something. Now, even that is not foolproof by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, at least that kind of distinction can be helpful in, um, in knowing how, how much weight to, uh, to give to comments of that sort. Uh, then I give you uh, the example of Pistis Jesucris II. Uh, all of the uh, debates going on today about that, it is remarkable, really quite remarkable, that uh, there for a number of years, nobody even raised the question. In the past three or four years, there have been a couple of articles and people who have raised it now. But up, up until the past three or four years, nobody was even raising the question of how was Pistis Jesucristu understood by the early Greek fathers. And uh, the f now it's, I, I mean, I knew this just from reading Chrysostom and, and, and sampling a few things here and there. Uh, it was perfectly evident to me that they took it as, a, um, as an objective genitive. But uh, now there is an article uh, that I mentioned there on note 35 that, uh, that confirms that more, more thoroughly. And um, again, you see, the point here is not <laughs> that Chrysostom or anybody else says, all right now, does this mean this or that? If Chrysostom, if Chrysostom did that, then you would know that there's some ambiguity present in his, own, in his own mind. People are raising that question, and now he gives you his interpretation. That's not what we have here. Nobody raises the question. Nobody even suggests that it may be a subjective genitive. And uh, even though that is not, uh, you know, a, a totally, um, by itself, it totally doesn't de definitively settle the question, uh, it is a very, very powerful uh, type of argument that needs to be uh, taken seriously. Uh, if, if you write something down for some kind of publication, uh, you've got to write in good Greek and, and what good Greek meant to people in the third, fourth century, and even actually already in the first century, was atheizing Greek. Now, um, if you write in what later in, in the history of the Greek language, actually modern times, came to be known as the demotiki, the, the, the common language of the people, that was perceived as uh, uncouth, a sign of um, lack of culture. And uh, some of the early Greek fathers were very sensitive to charges that sometimes would be brought against the New Testament. Why do you pay attention to this stuff? Obviously, this is not intellectually worthwhile. And uh, in reaction to that, 
uh, and and not aware of um, of the fact that that Paul and and some of these other writers in the New Testament um, had apparently made a deliberate decision to write in the Koine. Chrysostom and some of the other fathers tried to deal with the language of Paul in a way that fits the atticizing ideal. And so occasionally you come across certain comments in, uh, in Chrysostom and some of the other uh, fathers that uh, clearly misread Paul because they're trying to force him into the atticizing mold. So it, it is precisely because he's aware that this is a different style of writing and, and the style of writing that is viewed now as unacceptable that, uh, that the problems uh, come up. But I suspect that it would have been unimaginable for Chrysostom to think that the apostle would have written in, a, in the uncouth, in, in what is regarded by the, by the culture people of his day as, um, as evidence of, um, of a, um, you know, maybe low life is too strong, but uh, I mean, you just don't do it. I mean, it's, you know, so I think this is a, a cultural limitation on, on, on the Chrysostom's part more than anything else. And, and be aware, I mean, this is so strong that um, no one until the end of the 19th century uh, seems to really appreciate the particular character of uh, New Testament Greek. I mean, there, there were people earlier who, I think, had that sense that you're talking about, and well, maybe you know something else is going on here. And, and Lightfoot, you know, made a comment uh, to the effect, "Boy, if, if we if we um, had a handle on, on the letters that people wrote of the day, maybe they wouldn't be all that different from Paul's." You see, uh, and that was confirmed when uh, Dyson began to. Um, to go through those papyri, but um, uh, as I say, it's a cultural limitation that shows up not only in, in with regard to the language, but uh, to uh, a number of other details that come up in, in, in his attempt to make sense of what Paul is doing. I think even the matter of, of Galatians 2 and the conflict between Peter and Paul uh, also reflects certain, you know, certain cultural, theological changes that now uh, kind of obstruct Chrysostom's uh, approach to the text. The next section here, in, uh, verse uh, page 14, in manner of argumentation, I talk about um, formal external features about a commentary that uh, may influence the way in which the argumentation is actually um, made and uh, to what extent that does or does not affect the, the, even the process of, uh, of exegesis itself. It's, it's kind of an interesting question. In other words, uh, the fact that Longenecker is asked to write a commentary that has a, uh, all these divisions, you know, first you deal with form and then the exegesis and the explanation, whatever that means, uh, obviously, that's going to affect how the material is communicated. But an even more interesting question is, to what degree 
does the, the format itself affect the exegetical process and certain kinds of, of interpretive moves? And uh, I mean, some of these external features are probably not real uh, significant for that question, but certainly whether you approach something verse by verse as opposed to in some other more general way, that definitely is going to affect the, the interpretation. And uh, here's another thing that you, may, you know, want to think about in, in, uh, in trying to avoid using a commentator in some atomistic fashion. Get to page 16, <clears throat> dealing with Thomas Aquinas. Um, lots of interesting things that um, show up. And by the way, there, there, there are some other commentators earlier than Aquinas that um, make it very, very plain that even right smack in the middle of the medieval period, you have uh, quite a number of people doing historical grammatical exegesis in, in a very real sense and asking very pointed questions, taking them to an extreme. But uh, do keep in mind that um, the, the scholastic method was probably just a necessary stage in the history of civilization. You know, there are a number of people who argue quite vigorously that modern science is unimaginable without the, uh, the, the scholastic approach that preceded it. Uh, in the same way that there are certain things, you know, we read the, uh, the classic, classic philosophers of, uh, of ancient Greece and some of their questions and, and answers look uh, a little bizarre to us. And, and, you know, Zeno trying to prove that you can, don't ever move, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and you know that those kinds of questions and reflections that seem uh, totally relevant to us simply played a very, very important role in the development of thinking. And uh, the same is true for what was happening in the medieval period. When you read Aquinas, um, remember, I've, how long has it been now? Seven or eight years ago, I think, that I got a copy of um, of his commentary in Galatians. I was already familiar with uh, his uh, commentary in Philippians, which um, uh, is not of the same sort at all. But in Galatians, and, and you know that these are lectures given to the students, and then he comes up with this stuff that I give you there in, in, on page 16. First this and second this. Now the first part is divided into two others. First this and second this. Now the first part of that is divided into two others. First this and second this. And he starts talking about the first of them. And, uh, and then you read through that whole thing and you go to the next lecture and he picks up on, on one of those points and, and he gives you further directions. And uh, I realized that I was getting lost. So I began, as I was reading, to start making notations, you know, capital, you know, Roman numeral one and capital letter A and so on. And uh, as I kept going, I knew he has to get lost somewhere in here. <laughs> this is just too complicated. And uh, there were only a couple of places where he never seemed quite to get back, you know, but uh, it was so trivial that uh, it's not even worth mentioning. It, it's unbelievable. But I keep wondering, you know, the students who were taking notes, how did they do it? You know, how, how, what was going on here? Uh, Aquinas can be a, a wonderful, um, was that? An overhead? Yeah. <laughs> oh, of course. He was 
showing them all the time. Well, or maybe he was passing out syllabi. And, uh, um, but it's a wonderful exercise because a great deal of what Aquinas ends up doing uh, has uh, similarities with what today is called the study of propositional relations. He, he does a lot of that, trying to ask how our clause is related to one another logically. And um, I'm not, again, suggesting that, that you go through the whole letter, and, and, and but spending you know half an hour, 45 minutes or whatever with Aquinas uh, gives a little bit of an indication of, of, of certain kinds of questions that are very useful to ask, and we'll get back to that when we, in chapter three, when we talk about discourse analysis and what have you. Um, the, uh, this is about the paraphrase that um, Chrysostom already does in his homilies, uh, becomes very popular <coughs> at the time of the Reformation, even before. I mean, you have um, right on the eve of the Reformation a number of people like Lefay and, and uh, Erasmus uh, doing this kind of thing. And uh, subsequent scholars have um, picked up on that. Uh, Locke has some really, really interesting uh, paraphrases of the Epistles of Paul that uh, are really worthwhile looking at. Uh, and, and they tell us quite a bit about the Locke himself, but also the, the stage of, uh, of interpretation at his time. I uh, focus here on the contrast between Luther and Calvin. Uh, by the way, uh, Longenecker's uh, handling of, of some of this material is very, very strange to me. And, and um, I guess I need to do some double checking to try to figure out whether there's any truth at all in what, what he does. But I really think that he got, he gets, um, it's just a little misguided to work with the Alexandrian Antiochian contrast and then try to see the rest of, of the history by um, pigeonholing people into those, particularly when. Um, when the uh, definitions of what those two groups really are all about uh, is just a little too general and too vague. And uh, I, I was particularly, you know, stuff he says on Calvin is very strange to me. Um, yet Calvin was in many ways Antiochian in his historical and exegetical uh, sensibilities, although he was that. He was basically Alexandrian in his theological orientation in his understanding of the relation of the Testaments and his treatment of the interaction between gospel and law and the Christian life. Um, frequently he solved the issue on a theological basis, uh, not at all times inappropriately, but often too much, much too quickly. Now, what, why that is Alexandrian? Um, uh, I mean, I think probably Longenecker is telling us a little bit more about himself than he's about Calvin, but, um, and, and remarkably, for somebody writing in the 80s, uh, with all the questions being asked about um, you know, the, uh, the connection between authorial intent and relevance and application and so on, to uh, criticize Calvin because of the way in which he intertwines the then and the now is very, uh, very unfortunate. And, um, but anyway, uh, that's not the main thing that I'm after here. I, um, I am I'm more interested in, in the question of method and the way in which I think Calvin's admiration for Chrysostom influenced the way in which he went about 
writing his commentaries, and, and now we're focusing on Galatians in particular, and the contrast between Luther and, and Calvin is uh, uh, almost, um, I mean, they're two different genres altogether. Uh, for Luther, his lectures in Galatians are to a large extent a, um, a diving board uh, for polemicizing in the context of, of his problems. And I'm not saying that he shouldn't have done that. I'm, I'm just saying that you have to understand those lectures in that light uh, and not as you know, historical, exegetical kinds of, uh, of treatments. They involve his historical exegesis, but that's not the primary focus of what's happening there. Uh, Calvin's commentaries also arise from uh, the setting of, of, of preaching. Um, but uh, I think he integrates uh, the, this whole issue of relevance much more effectively than, than uh, Chrysostom was able to do. In the end, as an exegetical treatment, Luther's uh, as, uh, lectures are, are really not uh, all that impressive to my way of thinking, although it's very uneven, actually. <clears throat> and uh, as I point out on page 18, the, uh, the, lo the longer paragraph there, <clears throat> about the fifth sentence or so, and moreover, the very feature that makes it valuable, its passionate single-mindedness to set forth the doctrine of justification over against theological error, results in a very unbalanced exposition of the text. And in both of these respects, the 5019 lectures are more satisfactory. Um, well, yeah, I do give you some quotations about the law on, on, on footnote 47, uh, when he speaks about the law being sancta and salubris. Impossible to, to see that in the 1535 edition. And to commend the law uh, exceedingly and to praise it. Um, or, or later, when he speaks about... Um, um, the son who has been freed, because this is a common chapter 4, verse 7. We're no longer slaves, but sons. And, and a son would not, would not wish that there were no law, but rather rejoices that the law exists. Uh, you know, remarkable stuff there. Luther's use of logic, um, have some illustrations of that. <clears throat> His theological to commitment, uh, his commitment to theological exegesis in the middle of page 19. This is where I find it very strange, you know, that Longenecker should focus on, on Luther, on, on Calvin, and say, well, he sees Alexandrian, and he allows theology to, uh, uh, to, to play a very important role in the exegesis. Well, uh, Luther is much more motivated by that, and um, he doesn't try to hide it. He's very upfront about it.